0: As a pastor, I have spoken to thousands of couples, and I've heard them say over and over and over again, love shouldn't be this hard. Marriage shouldn't be this hard. It should just come naturally. Have you ever said that before? Marriage shouldn't be this hard. Love shouldn't be this hard. Tim Keller, in his quote on marriage, continues by saying, in response to this, that love shouldn't be so hard, it should just come naturally, I generally say something like, why would you believe that? Would someone who wants to play professional baseball say, it shouldn't be so hard to hit a fastball? Would someone who wants to write the the greatest American novel of her generation say, it shouldn't be so hard to create a compelling narrative? Of course not. Marriage is hard. In fact, there was a There was a brilliant article in the New York Times last year called Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. Isn't that a great title? Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. And the author goes on to say that he says, he says, in a wiser, more self-aware society than our own, a standard question on early dinner dates should be, and how are you crazy? (laughs) Isn't that great? Not are you crazy? But how are you crazy? Holy cow, marriage is hard. Relationships are hard. Wasn't any easier for the Christians that Peter's writing to. You need to know that as we look at 1 Peter chapter 3, okay? We've got to know some things together. When we open up 1 Peter chapter 3 and Peter begins to give us some instructions on marriage, we need to know that Peter's under no assumption whatsoever that he's, that he's writing the cast of Leave it to Beaver people who just have it all together. He's under no assumption whatsoever that he's writing people who live in a culture with black and white definitions of marriage and gender. That's not who Peter's writing to. He's under no impression that he's writing Christians who have a traditional conservative vision for marriage because if you think that's who peter's writing to then you can just write off his instructions and say well peter doesn't know how complex gender is he doesn't know how difficult marriage is he doesn't know how hard all these things are you can write it off but don't write it off because who is peter writing to peter's writing to christians In a Roman culture that is highly sexualized, where premarital sex was celebrated by young adults, where men openly and proudly had mistresses, and by all practical purposes, the culture of sex and ethics in ancient Rome would have made 2019 America look tame. So who's Peter writing to? Us a culture exactly like ours who desperately needs help with marriage and glorifying Jesus and those things. So, So my plea to you is listen carefully. God is going to speak with clarity and power on these issues because this, this is the art of Christian marriage. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Peter's writing how um, Christians should be submissive to their governing authorities, how they should be submissive to their bosses and masters. And then he goes on to write this little ditty. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So don't let your adorning be external like the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear? No. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Whew. Can I have a seat? So as you're sitting, I want to say this. Man, I have, uh, I have loved this week getting to know these women that Peter is writing to in First Peter chapter three. In fact, the more that I've studied these women, and the more I've studied this text, uh, the more God has revealed to me by His spirit, in his, in his word, that the women that Peter is writing to, these wives in First Peter chapter three, these wives are missional, beautiful, imperfect fearless women in a difficult situation who want more than anything to exalt Jesus Christ with their lives and with their marriages. These are the women that Peter's writing to, but at first glance, um, at first glance with the text, they just kind of seem like strangers, don't they? They just kind of seem like words on a page. So here's what we're gonna do as a church. Over the next 30 minutes, and if you're patient with me, maybe 35. Over the next 30 or so minutes, we'll say, we are going to invite these women into our lives by studying God's word very, very, very closely. And at the end of our time together, this is what we'll have accomplished. We will have made six, observ- six observations about these women. And so let's start here. The first thing that I want us to see about these women is that they are in a difficult situation, and a glorious one, but a difficult one. What situation are some of these women in? Well, some of these women are married to non-Christians. That's noted at the end of verse one. We'll have this on the screen for you. Peter says... Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word. So I I want to clarify something here. These these are not Christian women who dated non-Christian men. That's a bad idea. That's a wrong idea. That's not who these women are. These women were non-Christian women who married non-Christian men and then Jesus Christ kicked history in the face, changed everything. These women were converted to Jesus Christ, and their husbands weren't. Now, all of a sudden, where are they? They're in a covenant following Jesus Christ with unbelieving husbands. This is a difficult situation. Only some of them, though, but the other women who are married, they probably have an equally difficult spot. They're married to Christian dudes, which can sometimes be almost as tough. So we need to look at the second thing I want us to see about this text. The second thing I want us to see about this text is that these women are missional beasts. They are soul winners for the gospel. And this begins in the middle of verse one and then it bleeds into verse two. He says, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, holy cow, guys, holy cow, This vision for womanhood that Peter has, that the Bible has, this vision for womanhood is so radical, they're soul-witters, it's so radical that it's, it's almost impossible to imagine Peter living in the first century. You have to understand that in the first century, until Christianity liberated women, women had no legal or religious rights. In fact, in some of the Jewish synagogues, they had to sit with the children and the slaves. In fact, there was even one ancient Jewish rabbi who taught that a woman was to be considered unclean if she spoiled her husband's dinner or put too much salt on it. You've got to be kidding me, right? This is the culture that Peter is writing to. And Peter says, wives, you are soul winners. You can win men to the gospel with the conduct of your lives. And and I would argue that this text has a far more radical vision for womanhood than any secular source does. A far more radical vision for womanhood than any feminist blogger or any feminist author, and it's not even close. Some of those sources have good things to say, but a lot of those sources seem to say, women, you can be like men it's just not that high of a vision for womanhood. It's not. Peter says, women, you can win men to the gospel. That's way more powerful. That's incredible. So as we continue to build this vivid, real picture of these women in difficult circumstances who are seeking to win their husbands to Christ or to further Christlikeness, I, I want you, let, let's look at a third thing about these women. The third thing I want us to see is that these women are beautiful. We'll have this on the screen for you. This is in verses three through four. Peter goes on to say, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is precious. Now, you read those two verses, and part of you as a 21st century Westerner wants to say, well, no duh, you guys. Like, You shouldn't get your beauty from the clothing you wear. You should get your beauty from Christ. A lot of us know these things already, but I I don't want to belittle these women that he's writing to, because they do live in a different context than ours, and I want us to be able to empathize with them a little bit more than that. So what you need to know is that there was actually an incredible cultural pressure on these women to braid their hair in a certain way and to pick out certain types of clothing um, at the Jewish malls or anything like that because under Jewish tradition, girls ceased being children at the age of 12 and could be married off at the age of 12 and a half, which is part of the reason why there was a popular, even, not a, even though it's not a biblical, but there was a popular Jewish prayer during this time that men would pray that went like this. I thank Thee, that I was not born a Gentile, slave, or a woman. So you can imagine why these women would try to win their husbands with external adornment. You can imagine why they would try to seek and source their beauty in things. And Peter seems to be correcting this. What he seems to be doing is he seems to be saying, that may be how you won them as husbands. That may be how you adorned yourself before you knew Jesus Christ, but that's not how you're going to win them to Christlikeness. Peter... Know that Peter is not... He's not prescribing a dress code here, guys. I mean, it's actually quite the opposite. Peter is doing the opposite. He's protecting them from a dress code. You got to get that. It's sadly ironic because some people, um, women, will beat other women over the head with this text sometimes. Or sometimes men will beat women over the head with this text for wearing certain things and dressing in a certain way, not actually knowing that Peter's authorial intent in this text is to actually protect women from being beat over the head by men who demand that they braid their hair a certain way and dress a certain way. Do you see the irony here? It's incredibly ironic. The heart of the passage is, women, wear fine clothing if you want to. Braid your hair if you want to, but don't get your adornment from it. That's the command. Don't, the, the source of your beauty is not in your clothing. You might even say, he might even say, now, ladies, don't braid your hair if you don't want to. Wear cheap clothing if you want to, but don't adorn yourself in cheap clothing. Cheap clothing, how, how great of a discount you got on it, isn't the source of your beauty. Jesus is. Ladies, Jesus Christ has purchased your beauty on the cross. He has given you a new heart. He has made you into a new person. He's given you a hidden person of the heart. Don't you love that phrase? It's in our text this morning. He's given you a hidden person of the heart who is waiting to be fully revealed to you in the resurrection, and she's real, and she's you. And she's hidden in your heart and she's waiting for the resurrection so that in the resurrection you can put off your perishable beauty, which I know has failed you. I know that your perishable beauty has taken up so much of your time, it's taken up so much of your energy, it has been the cause of so much shame in your life and you're going to put it off in the resurrection. And you're going to put on an imperishable beauty because the hidden person of the heart will become the revealed person that you are and she will be beautiful. And do you know who you will dazzle with your beauty then? God. And do you know how long you will dazzle God with your beauty? Forever. It is imperishable. And in his sight, it is precious and beautiful. So you got to know that the women that he's writing to are beautiful. Beautiful. Fellas in the room, can I get an amen? I want you to see something else too, though. Here's the other thing I want you to see. The fourth thing I want you to see is that these women are imperfect, okay? In their quest to win their husbands to Christ, or for those who are married to Christian men, in their quest to win their husbands to further Christ-likeness, it it seems seems like some of the women have began to badger their husband. You can see this. Rise its head in the text. Peter says, and we'll have this on the screen for you. It's kind of a golden strand throughout the text. We got the next slide working, guys. Oh man, my fault. I put in the wrong slide. Pause one second, guys. We'll work through this. Okay, here's a golden strand throughout the text this this morning. Beginning in the middle of verse one, here's what Peter says. He says, these men may be one without a word, but by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, what does that mean? Peter elaborates in verse four where he describes these women as pursuing a gentle and quiet spirit. Did you hear that when we were reading the text together? And then Peter elaborates a little bit more on that in verse five where he describes godly women as women who submit to their own husbands. And so when Peter writes like this, ladies, it's important for you to know that he's, he's not prescribing a, a timid, antisocial, or introverted personality, even though it's cool if you have that. But he's not prescribing personality. What Peter is doing is he's saying, no nitpicking. No nitpicking, quarreling, pestering, badgering, bullying, browbeating, all of that stuff is powerless, you guys. He's saying, hey, if your husband doesn't love Jesus, then preach hour-long sermons in your home until he converts, right? <laughs> what Peter's saying is, hey, whenever your husband falls short of Christ-likeness, make sure that you use the gospel to beat him over the head and remind him how far he has fallen short of Jesus Christ, right? Wrong. What Peter's saying is that nobody has ever been pestered into the kingdom, Ever. No man has ever been bullied into Christ-likeness. So Peter says, have a gentle and quiet spirit. Peter says, submit to your husbands. And I, I know that that word submit, let's call out the elephant in the room here, I know that that word submit needs some clarity. We'll do that in a couple minutes. Hold on with me. First, I want you to see this fifth thing about women that's in the text. The fifth thing that I want you to see about these women is that these women are fearless. This is on verse six. Peter goes on to say, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, women, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Interesting way to end a paragraph, isn't it? He ends the paragraph by saying, women, do not fear anything anything that is frightening. Now, what would be frightening to these women in this situation? Well, consider again the women who are married to non-Christian men. What would be frightening to them is the fact that they're sitting there at church listening to this letter be read aloud, worshiping Jesus Christ alone while their husband is home alone fondling his golden idols. She doesn't know what's waiting for her when she gets back to that home. And Peter's saying, don't... Fear him. Continue to worship Jesus Christ. In fact, it was unheard of for women to be in this position in the first century. These women are fearless. It was unheard of in the ancient world for women to worship different gods than their husbands' gods. In fact, there was a first century philosopher who described and prescribed religious and social habits for women by saying this. This is not in the Bible. This was just common opinion back then. He said, a wife. Should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her, worship, her, or whom her husband worships. And these ladies are saying, no, not going to do it. I will respect you. I will stay married to you, but I will not worship your gods. I'm going to church this morning. These women have said, no, I'm going to worship Jesus Christ. There's some fear in the room, and Peter's saying, ladies, continue to be fearless. Keep worshiping Jesus Christ. And then Peter shifts gears in his letter, doesn't he? After that, he shifts gears. He all of a sudden starts speaking to the men. And what I want you to see is that uh, fellows in the room, even as he's talking to men, he's still mostly describing the women which is the sixth thing I want you to see about these women. These women are co-equals with men. You see this in verse seven. Peter uses the phrase, heirs with you of the grace of life. All the riches of salvation are going to be shared with husband and wife, man and woman. And then Peter goes on, well, earlier in verse seven, he actually uses this little ditty in the scripture. He describes women as the weaker vessels. He says, husbands, Live with understanding with your wives as the weaker vessel. Now, uh uh-oh. Women as weaker vessels. Uh Uh-oh, right? Because I've seen my wife give birth and there ain't nothing weak about that vessel, right? And and on top of that, let's consider the literary context. Peter's been laboring to instruct these wives on how to win their husbands to Christ, how to remain fearless in the face of fear. And then he makes... A remark on their physical ability? Maybe even a, a derogatory insult by calling them the weaker vessels. It just doesn't seem to fit the text. This text has had nothing to do with physical capability or cap- capacity, and all of a sudden, Peter drags that into the room. Why the derogatory phrase? And the answer is really quite simple. It's because it doesn't fit the text because that isn't a derogatory phrase. What's it mean to be the weaker vessel, guys? we've well, we got to be careful to import our own weightlifting understandings onto the word weakness. We want to know how Peter was using it and the culture he was using it. And at the end of the day, it gets a little bit ambivalent. So some of you will draw different conclusions than me on this issue. Totally cool. But consider this. In 55 AD, which was pretty close to when this letter was written, there was a, a roll of papyrus that was used where the exact same word for weakness was used in a, in a note. Follow along with this. On this piece of papyrus, a woman is described to have appointed her grandson to act as her representative in court, quote, since she is unable to because of her womanly weakness. She wouldn't have been taken seriously in court. She should have been, but she would not have been. So what is womanly weakness in the ancient world? Social and public disadvantage, So weaker vessel in this text refers to women as less privileged in this culture. Their dignity more easily insulted, which is still true today, right? Their dignity more easily insulted. Their influence and opinion in the public sphere taken more lightly, more easily exploited, more easily taken advantage of weaker vessels. In fact, Eugene Peterson, one of my pastoral heroes, he translates this verse by describing it in a beautiful way. He he looks at the phrase, show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, he translates it this way. He says, men, honor your wives because as women, they lack some of your advantages. Very nicely, very tightly, very beautifully, this meaning seems to fit in the immediate literary context of 1 Peter 3, which is, Women are precious and beautiful in the sight of God. They're co-heirs with men in the grace of life. They don't have your advantages. They are often misunderstood in culture. So husbands, work hard to understand them. And if you don't, God won't work hard to understand you. Do you see how it ended? Understand your wives so that your prayers may not be hindered, which is like, whew, that's a tone shift, Right? Actually, I was thinking about it, the literary context of 1 Peter seems to me like a scene from my favorite TV show, The Office, which I know I quote quite a bit in the sermons. That's just part of the curse of having me as your lead pastor. But there's a scene in The Office where Michael, the manager, he's at one of his employees' weddings. Her name is Phyllis. And Michael, after the wedding, comes up to the new husband and he cracks a joke. He says to the husband, he says, don't you lay a hand on Phyllis or I'll kill you. He kind of giggles about it, and the husband looks at him sternly and says, no, Michael, if you lay a hand on her, I'll kill you. She's like, ooh, that shifted, right? Live with your wives in an understanding way, or I'll clog your prayers. So we gotta get this right. So I'm gonna be selfish here, and I know I'm being selfish as a preacher. I know I'm being selfish as a long-winded preacher, but I want your best attention for the next 10 minutes because apparently there's a lot at stake here. If we get this wrong, if we fail to understand our wives, then the effectiveness of our prayers will be hindered. I don't want that to happen. Let's aim for clarity. Let's think hard really critically. I want to start by giving us a technical theological term for Peter's vision for marriage. It's a big word, but it's worth knowing. The word is... Complementarianism. Men and women are created to complement one another. Here's a definition for it Complementarianism is the theological understanding that God has made men and women with equal worth and dignity in His image and with distinct postures that aren't interchangeable. Husbands, your posture is a posture of masculine, sacrificial leadership. You don't get to exchange it. You don't get to punt it down the field if you don't like it. Ladies, your posture is a posture of feminine, fearless submission. It doesn't get to be punted. That vision of marriage, the art of biblical marriage, is called complementarianism. And there's, there's a lot there. I'm using words like leadership. I'm using words like submit Since there's a lot there, I just want to tackle some myths about this, okay? We're going to roll through a couple myths about this vision for marriage. The first myth is, submission implies inferiority. That's a myth. In the middle of his exposition on how Christians should submit to governing authorities, how wives should submit to their husbands, Peter puts forth Christ as the example of submission in chapter 2. So to draw the conclusion... That submission implies inferiority, belittles Jesus Christ. It would be to imply that Jesus Christ was inferior to his governing authorities. To imply that Jesus Christ was inferior to emperor. And that is stupidity of the highest degree. Christ is inferior to no one. So the second myth is that Peter's commands for wives to submit to their husbands is irrelevant. This is trickier. A lot of times, Christians will play around with premises and conclusions in the Bible. They'll play around with those two things. Even really smart, really loving Christians will sometimes look at Peter's conclusion and Paul's conclusion in the New Testament of wives submit to your husbands and they'll import an unbiblical premise. Something like this. Well. It's because women had less access to education in that era, which is actually true. And that's really, really sad. But they go on to say, because they now have equal access to education, we no longer obey the conclusion. Do you see how that is a playing around with premises and conclusions? So look a little closer at the text. Peter's conclusion in chapter three, be subject to your husbands, is actually rooted not in a cultural premise. What's it rooted in? The conclusion is rooted in the example of who? Yeah, Sarah and Abraham. That's what it's rooted in. That's actually an event that happened in the Old Testament, which is an entirely different culture than the New Testament. So Peter's vision for the art of marriage is actually cross-cultural already. And on top of that, Paul actually begins to expand on that. Paul roots these commands in the gospel itself. Paul gives the conclusion, wives submit to your husbands. Why? This premise. As the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands. Paul continues by saying, husbands love your wives. Why? Premise? Because Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Paul roots the art of biblical marriage in the gospel itself, making his vision for marriage not simply cross-cultural, but supra-cultural outside of culture, in the gospel. Wives are to celebrate their husband's leadership as long as the church celebrates Jesus' leadership. Men are to die sacrificially for their wives as long as Christ continues to love the church sacrificially, which is a long, long time. Myth number three. So marriage takes its cues from culture? Huge myth. Huge swing in a miss. The cues of marriage for the Christian come from the gospel as we're expanding on right now. Husbands and wives don't get to write our own definitions for masculinity and femininity. They were written before the foundation of the world in the characters of the church and Christ. That's where your definition comes from. So husbands, if the call to lead is puffing you up even one square inch this morning, start over. Christ died. His leadership is death. Death so that we can flourish. So masculine leadership needs to be defined this way. Leadership is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility for the family's flourishing. If you don't like definitions, it means you jump on the grenade. It means you're the punching bag, so that your family flourishes. And wives, if the call to submit to celebrate your husband's leadership, if that denigrates or deflates you even one square inch, start over. In fact, the church's submission to Christ is always intelligent, it's always skillful, it's always glad, and it's always joyful. So feminine, fearless submission needs to be defined in the context of the Bible this way. It is the glad celebration of your husband's leadership that wins him and your family and the world to further Christlikeness. Which brings up my fourth myth that I want to tackle this morning. Myth number four, Peter's vision for marriage is 50-50, give and take. No, it's not. If husbands and wives see their marriages as 50-50, I'll lead a little bit, and and then if you celebrate me, I'll lead a little bit more, and then if you celebrate me a little bit, then I'll lead a little bit. That vision for marriage, give and take isn't Peter's vision for marriage. In fact, the marriage will just devolve into a business contract if you do that little dance. One writer goes on to say, Going 100% all in means we go all in concerning God's design for men and women within marriage. For husbands particularly, this means we go 100% at putting our wife above us. Practically, this means that you honor your wife by putting her in first place. You mostly plan around her and the kids. Date night is mostly stuff she likes to do. It means vacation is mostly places she wants to go. Everything else is last place compared to her. That is what honoring your wife means. In fact, there's a professor at Calvin Seminary who describes um, what this looks like, this 100% celebrating leadership, 100% sacrificial, everybody going all in. He describes what this might look like in conflict. It's the way that his dad described it to him when he was growing up. He says, my dad, when I was little, explained that, Real disagreement often arises in marriages. What happens is peripheral images or peripheral issues, secondary issues, get (laughs) paired away. One peripheral, secondary, peripheral, secondary. Disagreements get paired off the table, and then the truly basic disagreement is exposed. What happens then? He says... Husband and wife then assume their natural Christ-like rhythm, the husband saying, dear, we'll go your way on this. Oh no, she says, you're right and we'll follow your lead. Back and forth they go, honoring one another, back and forth until the deadlock is unbreakable. And so finally, the husband draws himself up to his full height and says, look, I'm going to have to break the tie. I hereby invoke the male leadership principle. You're right, honey. We're going to do it your way, sweetie, and I don't want to hear another word about it, baby. Isn't that awesome? That's real leadership. The husband is ultimately moving the ball down the field. It's sacrificial leadership. It's done with a deep understanding with his wife's needs and his wife's joy at the forefront. And it doesn't always look like that, right? It's hard. Right? You remember that Keller quote we started with? It's hard. He says, why would you believe that it's easy? Would someone who wants to play professional baseball say it shouldn't be so hard to hit a fastball? Of course marriage is hard. So I want to end with an encouragement, okay? I want to end with a story this morning. There's an essay in a book about biblical manhood and womanhood that, uh, (laughs) it it almost makes me cry every time. Uh, The author describes himself in a situation. He found himself this way. It's a very visual situation he finds himself in. He says, I was with a friend some time ago driving home, and in front of us was a new pickup truck with a family. The mother was driving, and the father was beside her in the cab, and the children were in the back, and they were obviously excited and happy and joyful and laughing to be on vacation. And suddenly, one of the wheels snapped off and the truck veered sharply to the right and shot off a 60-foot cliff. I was struck by this story when I was studying 1 Peter 3 because relationships and marriages in this culture just seem to be a car wreck. And ours are so often a car wreck. And it so often brings up the question, who's gonna fix this mess? The author goes on to say, the truck shot off a 60-foot cliff. My friend and I were the only ones there, so we stopped our car and we ran down the hillside as fast as we could. We ran to the children doing what we could do. All of them were unconscious. The mother was seriously injured. It looked as though she had broken her legs and her pelvis, but she started crawling on her belly to each child. We couldn't prevent her, we couldn't hold her back and the father was in the best shape of anyone. But he stayed in the truck. And the writer goes on to say, this scene is forever engraved in my mind. It says something to me about the men of our country. The children and women are lying wounded, strewn throughout our cities, And the father needs to get out of the truck, and the father won't get out of the truck. So our big question this morning is, who will get out of the truck? Peter's instructions are clear. Husbands, work to deeply understand your wives and your families. Love them. Sacrifice for them. Lead them. And these instructions are incredibly important, okay? But I need to encourage some people in the room, husbands in the room, who have felt beat down by this sermon so far because your leadership has not been sacrificial or you have abdicated on your leadership or you've punted the ball down the field and refused it. If you're feeling beat down by this sermon and wives in the room, if you feel like you have been bickering and belittling your husband, devaluing him, Not celebrating his leadership. If the thought of celebrating his leadership makes you sick to your stomach, you need to be encouraged this morning. Singles, if the thought of there even being an art of biblical marriage deflates you, you need to know that these instructions for marriage are important, but they are not the gospel. Jesus got out of the truck. That's the gospel. That's the message, that's the heartbeat, that's the meaning of the gospel. Christ has seen the car wreck of your life. He has seen the car wreck of your marriage. He has seen you in the car wreck of your sinful nature and he gets out of heaven. He puts on flesh. He dies in your place and he's coming for you because Jesus Christ gets out of the truck and that's, well, that's really, really good news. So let's end there this morning. Pray with me.